0: Hi, welcome, this is the Seattle Mama Doc Podcast and I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to perfect how we pull off parenthood and often we may not feel good enough I'm here with Dr. Danielle Dolazal, who's a Ph.D., and she's also a board-certified behavioral analyst, which I'm going to have her explain. There's all sorts of letters after her name to help guide you and reduce both anxiety and suffering that comes from challenges when your child can't eat well. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. So I just want to say as a call out here that Dr. all helped me right after she came to Seattle Children's with a patient and family of mine when I was in primary care pediatrics, well before I think I was even doing very much media and learning about this. And I had kind of tried everything I could and reached out to everyone I could. And then I made a call and someone connected me with her services. <laughs> and this was a child who um, had an autism spectrum disorder and was having profound challenges with eating and was earnestly down to eating only about and I'm not exaggerating like one food and I was I had thrown my hands up in the air and Dr. Joel is all helped this child and family so much I I remember writing a letter on behalf of it Mm -hmm. afterwards. So this is a a big treat. Just so you know, Dr. Dolezal uh, started off her career as a special ed teacher after getting a master's in special ed. And she focused on early childhood and children who struggled with severe challenging behaviors. She then went back and got a doctorate at the University of Iowa in psychology and started studying more specifically how to intervene with feeding disorders and severe challenging behaviors. She then went to Johns Hopkins and did multiple postdoctoral fellowships. So I'm telling you, she's like the expert of the expert and then came to Seattle Children's and built an entire program Mm -hmm. to integrate all different kinds of services which she's going to tell us about. And the reason I give you all that background about her kind of premier expertise is that she knows more about this um, than people really know about how to help families who are suffering and overwhelmed when their kid doesn't eat. So, mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, first and foremost, let's talk about So, we're going to speak specifically about children who have underlying diagnoses of attention problems or autism spectrum disorder at baseline and the challenges that they can specifically have with sensory issues and eating. Mm-hmm. T- tell us how often that happens and and maybe why it happens.
1: Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, a very important topic and I really appreciate you having me on to talk about this because a lot of Children and families with autism struggle with significant feeding issues that really impact the family as a whole and the child um, themselves. And these these we've seen um, research showing up to eighty nine percent of children diagnosed with autism can struggle with these issues. And this is beyond just. Wait, I'm going to intervene there. Yeah.
0: So like I, it's like a new like my hands are in the because it's like eighty nine percent. That's basically nine out of ten children yeah. who have autism will have challenges with eating. Correct. So it seems like this is a, the PSA out here of saying if you have a child or a friend or a family member mm-hmm. who's struggling with autism make sure that they're talking about how are they getting support with how this child exactly. eating. Exactly,
1: exactly. Because it's,
0: it's almost all of children
1: exactly. right, who are having that challenge. Exactly, and okay. it's a really, that's why it's I'm so grateful to be doing this, to reach other families, to let them know, you know, hey, you're not alone. This is a really significant problem, and that we're here to offer you help and hope in a way where we can, we've developed a program to really try to help facilitate improvements in their diet, uh, r- reducing the stress at meal times and improving, you know, their intake and reducing that challenging behavior around
0: mealtimes. Yeah, we were talking before we started recording that, you know, it's like there's nothing more settling, I think, in a child who's developing normally or a child who's not developing normally, having finished a day where a child ate well and you feel good as a parent that you got good food in them as they're growing and then having them be peacefully asleep. Mm -hmm. And when that doesn't happen... The amount of like agitation and unease mm-hmm. that we feel as parents, and I, I, I have typically developing children, and I have children who aren't specifically picky, and yet I've had those kind of hard and challenging days, and my unsettledness, I remember, it, it was profound at times, mm-hmm. and, and and earnestly like for me even insomnia invoking. So, I, you know, I think what we talked about a little bit is mm-hmm. that. You know, children who don't eat well maybe then don't sleep well. Families who support children who don't eat well maybe don't eat well and feel unsettled. Then families who support children who don't sleep well don't sleep well. And then it's just like that vicious kind of turbulent cycle.
1: Oh, very much so. And, you know, it just is a cascading effect because when you don't get proper nutrition, you don't maybe pay attention very well during school. It'll impact your behavior. It'll impact your relationships with others. It'll impact the household. It just kind of cascades into sleep, et cetera. And it's incredibly stressful.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. So why is it – help us understand just at the baseline of what research and what you know as an expert. Mm -hmm. Why is it that children (laughs) with autism spectrum disorders have a hard time – eating mm-hmm. in ways that other children might. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think the typical philosophies is probably that people have heard from their pediatricians or family docs is kind of like you're, you know, the division of labor that Ellen Satter, uh, yeah. the nutritionist yes. who's wonderful, uh, right? Yes. Who said and I love, mm-hmm. in regular developing children, it which is a parent's job is to provide really good healthy food. A child's job is to decide what and how much of that to eat. Correct. Yeah. So, what happens in a child with autism that they that that isn't enough of mm-hmm. the guidance or advice.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really complex question, and a lot of people are looking into that right now. And I think the common consensus is there's not a single factor that will explain why a child with autism is struggling with feeding issues. There are, there are deeply, you know, across medical issues where kids maybe are struggling with chronic constipation or GI issues that might set up the occasion for a child to associate pain or discomfort with eating that might bleed into missed opportunities for developing skills or milestones with eating, let alone the increased sensory sensitivities that children with autism can experience that will lead to eating to be this really aversive experience where they will start like if a a certain type of texture of food um, has a certain reaction where they they will never mm-hmm. want to experience that reaction again. Mm-hmm. So then that might lead to overgeneralization of I'm not going to try any other foods that look like this color or this shape, you know. And Because they remember they, the discomfort associated with that. Correct. It's yeah. powerful. If you think of those eating moments. We've or, all had them, yeah, right? Or I mean, I think about this or,
0: like a food poisoning. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Like I once vomited in a car trip after eating Funyuns. I've never had a Funyun again. Exactly. I mean, as a child, right? Exactly. And I like exactly. I see Funyuns yeah, in the right. aisle and it's like just Disgusting, right. right? Or I remember one time eating an oyster that was like off. Right. And I mean it's just like ha and then yeah. there were and then, you know, I think I had norovirus <laughs> one time after eating I mean, clearly I like oysters, but after because I and we're here in <laughs> the Pacific Northwest. But like and I'm a nor I'm an adult who can think through this. And right. I, I took exactly. five years off of shellfish exactly. because I had one bad experience. Exactly. So yeah. then
1: As an advocate, you know, mental health and learned associations and how kids feel and learn about eating is critically important for how we address and treat. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, psychologists or behavior analysts are the ones that aren't at the table when we're trying to treat these really significant feeding challenges.
0: Parents are, you mean. Is that what you mean? Or do you mean in the care plan making? In the
1: care plan making. So being at the table to provide also that assessment that maybe is primarily driven by occupational therapists or speech therapist or your dietitian, you also need to incorporate how children's are, children are reacting and yeah. all the learned behavior and memories that are coming to the table when they're trying to expand their diets or eat more by mouth. So it's really important to think about that because you have those powerful learning um, ex- memories and experiences. And additionally, I think kids with autism, they really struggle in some of those core domains around communication challenges or social interactions or this bigger topic around this level of rigidity or insistence on mm-hmm. sameness. Mm-hmm. And that contributes greatly and complicates that feeding picture even more because they are coming to the table with all of those struggles. And mm-hmm. that, can, that really plays out at mealtimes because eating is one of the highest, most sensory experiences you can have. Yeah.
0: And yeah. we're talking about the metaphoric table here, not the dining table. And the the table yeah. kind of, you know, like, I was just thinking about <laughs> that. like Sorry. Yeah, so the metaphoric table of like kind of what's at play. Yes. Give, give me some examples. So I, I do the silly thing where I talk about funny ends and oysters. But I mean, in a child with strong associations, or it, mm-hmm. I, I liked your words about a need for often a children with autism, a need for sameness, yes. right? Or kind of rigidity with how they want something to go. Exactly. And every parent knows that there is something wonderful about setting expectations and following them, right? Mm -hmm. We know kind of children thrive Mm -hmm. in an expected world. Mm -hmm. Um, But children with autism can can take that to the margin, right? Where a preoccupation with sameness Mm -hmm. might drive them to want to eat only the same thing every day, right? Yes, yes. And, And so when that happens, is it is I mean, just from a tip standpoint, mm-hmm. if a family starts to kind of smell that problem coming on mm-hmm. where they're seeing more and more rigidity around breakfast and all of a sudden breakfast is turning into lunch or something and it's the same food every day and that's the only thing that mm-hmm. they – they offer 15 different things and that's the only thing that's eaten. What's something that they can, I guess, avoid doing <laughs> or what mm-hmm. can they do immediately like in an upstream way yeah. that that isn't, I guess, quote-unquote damaging or doesn't make the problem harder? Mm-hmm. Is there something that you've learned over, over the years that – you think, kind of, just at the get-go, can help? hmm I think that's also a complicated question because
1: I'll, a quick story: there was a, a young child who came to us that was drinking Pediasure as their main source of calories mm-hmm. and not eating anything else by mouth, mm-hmm. and it had to be in a particular sippy cup, mm-hmm. and it had to be in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And they went to their doctor and they said, "What do I do? They're not, you know, they're not flexible with trying different cups. I'm running to the manufacturer of that particular cup, trying to buy out as many of those cups so oh, my child grief. won't right. stop." Right. drinking the PediaSure, right. and the the doctor was like, well, just try, Just you're just going to have to put it in a different cup and just hope for the best. Ugh. Well, what happened with that little bit of advice is that child stopped drinking for like three to four days and ended up in the emergency room at the hospital because that drive of um, not wanting to drink out of a different different cup is so strong. It was
0: predominant. Yes, that, that exactly. was That was the main thing thinking that this child had on getting fed. Yes.
1: and so I think uh-huh. what we try to think about is how do we celebrate and reinforce flexibility with what the child is already doing. So if they're primarily eating dry crunchy textures, which is really common in this population, um, then we will try to branch out, start small with any different type of cracker that they'll do. So if mm-hmm. it's just white cheddar Cheez-Its, then we might do cheddar Cheez-Its and celebrate that as a mm-hmm. new learning experience and a new demonstration of flexibility with that. And just keep kind of blending on um, those small stretches. The other thing is that we will look at and work with families around flexibility with what they are eating. So there might be some moderately preferred foods or versus the high preferred foods that you can kind of keep rotating through on a regular basis during the day and trying not to get into those ruts just because you know that your child is going to eat them, even if it's just presenting them on a plate or a bowl next to, next to their plate, are things that can be important with the idea, the that you're reinforcing this flexibility in your child. So you're not kind of getting into those ingrained patterns. But sometimes it's really hard. And I tell that um, sippy cup example is that no intervention here in this case is benign or that can cause harm in a child. So we have to be really careful and really seek to get that team together for your child so you can have some suggestions
0: on how to move forward in a smart way. Say that again. So no intervention is benign meaning Yet. that yeah, meaning that which is scary to me, right? Yes. Like that's like a big red flag, which is anything you do might cause harm.
1: Yeah. Or have an effect, I should say. Like it yeah. could be a good effect. It could be like mm, like no effect really, or it could be a bad effect. And yeah. so I think we just have to be really smart about what intervention we're asking a family to do because it's going to have a massive impact already on a very stressful and isolating situation with yeah. these feeding issues.
0: So so knowing that, mm-hmm. knowing that you know every intervention has an effect, mm-hmm. um, let's. I just want to rewind back to that question of if, if something all of a sudden, it's like the, if the wheels are starting to fall off <laughs> yeah. and like meals are getting consecutive, like each day they're getting harder and harder, where should a family go? Like where's the first call that they should make? And mm-hmm. what are the first kinds of questions they can ask for mm-hmm. in, in seeking support so that mm-hmm. Um, you know, anyone who's listening right now, if you're feeling overwhelmed and you're yeah. thinking something is going wrong and I does feel like it's spinning out of control and, shoot, now I know that anything I do will have an effect, yeah. who should they reach out to yeah. first?
1: That's a really good question. And I wish I had a perfect answer for it and we had perfect resources. But I think ultimately I would say you need to build a team around your kiddo. And the first person is really probably your main doctor, your primary care doctor, mm-hmm. and really start to talk about these issues with him or her and ask for specific help. And that even though your child may be growing and gaining just fine what they're eating and emphasize that nutritional, you're concerned about the quality of their diet mm-hmm. and that you would like some help. And then there would be, you know, a referral to an occupational therapist or a speech and language pathologist in addition to um, a dietitian to really start looking around, okay, well, what could I possibly do to increase my child's diet? Mm-hmm. And then working with them as well as, like I was mentioning, getting a psychologist mm-hmm. or um, a behavior analyst on, on your team to really help with that around putting those pieces together for your child to know what those next steps are going to be. And if there's no specific program... There's not one person or one,
0: yeah. So it's kind of reaching out to your pediatrician or family doctor or nurse practitioner and saying, here's a challenge. And and I think we were talking before the recording, too, about... How often families get kind of blown off by somebody like me yeah. as a general pediatrician who says, well, the growth grid looks great. I think they're doing fine. Right. Give them a daily vitamin. You'll get the daily – you know, you'll get the – which, you know, typically developing kids don't even need a multivitamin. Mm-hmm. But kids, I think, who, you know, are missing – I often say, like, if they're only eating colored – like, you know, foods of one color or they refuse one entire food group, et cetera, without question, I think you should do a multivitamin just mm-hmm. to make sure – actually, frankly, even for parental reassurance mm-hmm. that you're getting the micronutrient – micro. you know, nutrient and vitamins in, um, in addition to the recommended vitamin D, but but that you're going to need probably more than one type of person to help. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of exactly. what I hear you saying that. You may need an occupational therapist to help you with what kind of utensils you use mm-hmm. or where you sit or how you sit together. Mm-hmm. You may need a physical therapist to help with strength or tone mm-hmm. or even mm-hmm. frank rigidity in a child's body mm-hmm. or something that makes it difficult for mm-hmm. feeding. You may need a psychologist for support on parenting tips on how you coach through a meal or how you model your own eating, right? right. And and then you may need, you know, we, we talked a little bit about um, laboratory draws so that Regular growth velocity or regular weight gain may not reflect that a child has the iron they need Mm -hmm. or has um, the vitamin requirements they need. Where where can you guide parents? What questions should they be asking or how can they advocate for a child's nutritional evaluation?
1: Mm -hmm. I think – you know, I was talking with our dietitian on our team to, as, as, a, as a group together around what should we really be emphasizing during this time as this opportunity to share with others. And she also made a really strong point that, that finding the help of the team members that we were speaking about who also have expertise in working with children with autism and feeding difficulties because mm-hmm. they will also be able to help guide some of those questions. So, number one, advocating, not being afraid as a mom to say, do you have experience in helping kids with autism and feeding issues?
0: You know, yeah. It's one. always okay to ask that. Absolutely. It's so hard, though. You it know, even very very a, as a, a professional and yes. a loud mouth that I am, <laughs> right? Like, I get really intimidated by the health system. You know, Absolutely. like, and I get intimidated asking people kind of like, you know, it's like, really, like, are you qualified? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it was just really like yes. an awkward thing. But at the same time, mm-hmm. what you're saying is, Children with autism who have challenges with oral aversions or mm-hmm. associations or, or rigidities or sameness need somebody who understands how to intervene because every intervention has an effect. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And I think, too, we, we often will connect parents with other parents. So that's another thing they could ask for is like, well, can I speak to, with another parent? How do you do that? Um, I just ask another
0: parent if they yeah. would mind,
1: you know, speaking with another parent. And you give a phone just, number? Yeah, they they will agree.
0: Hurrah for you. Yeah, and they'll talk I love to each that. other. I love that. Are there Facebook groups you know about or social networks that you know where families who have these challenges are mm-hmm. communicating? I th- I'm not, like, super
1: expert on, like, the Facebook, you know, (laughs) groups, but I know that there are some out there with um, feeding difficulties and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure where families are are kind of their trade secrets Mm -hmm. are getting exposed that
0: way. Tell me a little bit about how can we – when – like, how can we guide families to – not brace themselves, but if if about 9 out of 10 children with autism have challenges with eating, Mm -hmm. is there a typical – timing or pattern that you see Mm -hmm. is there anything that you can forecast for people of when to reach out almost to prevent things from going worse tell tell me about how that goes with development with children
1: that's a great question and in fact we in my experience when I'm hearing the story after story in our clinic, um, these issues are usually the first. Feeding is usually the first thing that gets noticed yeah. by parents before even the symptoms Behavior. of autism mm-hmm. start to emerge. So and it's g- give usually us examples in yeah, infancy. sure. So. Um, you know, kids will, the story I hear is, you know, tell me about, did they breastfeed? Did they, bo- you know, bottle feed? And they'll right. say breastfed went well, bottle went well. The introduction of mm-hmm. stage two foods went well. They ate a great variety. But it wasn't until like that stage transition. Threes. exactly the started to, Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Until that started to happen yeah. where they started to notice some things. And maybe they would start to eat more of those child-friendly foods. But when maybe they're, the radar hasn't picked up yet, but once they started to introduce variety or other things then they started to notice oh wow this is a little bit harder and then that once broad variety starts to slowly be rejected so one food's lost then the next food's lost mm-hmm. then the next food's lost until then parents are concerned like this is a this is a challenge for me i don't know mm-hmm. how to Expand their diets, and I feel like I'm just feeding what they want because I'm worried about their nutritional the the the, diet, the quality
0: of their diet right now and getting and food will, in. That, exactly, that feeling again of exactly. just like I feel so much better when my kid has eaten. Exactly, we all do. <laughs> exactly, we all do. Yeah. So in infancy, it'll be. Um, reduce selection from the beginning, or mm-hmm. um, of, or kind of reducing what they once tried exactly. and kind of scaling back. Yeah. What happens That's usually?
1: The, the latter is usually the, the biggest scaling one? back. So they scaling they try
0: a bunch of things back. at first, and then yeah. they start to say, they, Mm-mm. Just,
1: they just slowly
0: start to you know, ratchet down and narrow what mm-hmm. their intake is going to be until it becomes a problem. And then Mm -hmm. what about, tell me, so, you know, toddlerhood in general. So it's interesting, you know, growth velocity slows down after 12 months. Mm -hmm. Kids tend to eat a little bit less. Mm -hmm. And, you know, quote-unquote pickiness, um, which is extremely Mm -hmm. normal developmentally for toddlers. Mm -hmm. Is it different in kids with autism? Are there things that families see that you've learned? Like, are there pearls for parents to Mm -hmm. children who have concerns about how their child communicates during their toddler years? Mm -hmm. Are there certain times or or thoughts you have about toddlerhood in general for children with these challenges?
1: I think they're very, what we learned is that they're very similar. They're just more intense and a bit more severe. So those Mm. patterns of really, you know, kind of that normal, I'm the normal picky eating, like I'm afraid to try something new. It's just more pronounced. There might be more behavioral rigidities and tantrums at meal times too mm-hmm. that can also be happening. And so those are the things to kind of watch for and those are the moments like reach out for help now because the sooner we intervene, mm-hmm. obviously the, the better. better. Yeah. And then also be really mindful of your kids slipping into these grazing patterns of eating which is also really really common in the kids that we see. They have this disrupted hunger satiety. And that makes it very, very difficult for kids to try any new foods during that time. They're just kind of grazing and taking the edge off of their hunger throughout the day, because they're never really eating enough at those set meal times. And so we really work hard with our families to kind of work with what you have and the foods that your child will eat, but also work in a set meal time as well, because uh-huh. they'll be more apt and more ready to try new things if they have these kind of set.
0: Patterns. Yeah, and and that is that, so help me understand that. So is mm-hmm. that in children with autism spectrum disorders, the way that after they fill up after a meal and they feel full or the Mm -hmm. way they feel hungry is different than a typically developing child so that they're more prone to graze or you just disrupt it by letting a kid kind of have a steady stream of goldfish crackers all day?
1: (laughs) Right. And also sometimes in our kids on the spectrum, not all children, but they have a hard time sitting down for meals and staying seated. And so then it sort of bleeds into, well, I'll just leave the food on the table so you can kind of come and go and play when they're younger. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard for toddlers to pay attention sometimes. Of course, of course. <laughs> and stay in their yeah. seat. Yeah. So then, that sort of bleeds into. Well, I don't know if they really got enough, so I'm going to leave it out for a half an hour more, and then it's an hour more, and then it's pretty much I'm grazing throughout, giving you know milk whenever they need to, and so then yeah. it's just a very disrupted, you know, sort of hunger satiety. You know, so the pattern. advice then,
0: yeah, is sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, the no, the advice is then to say, ideally, you want to sure. keep your three meals and sit down and model mm-hmm. and be with your child as long as you can, exactly. and maybe. Two snacks. I mean, just just yes. as a so is it kind of the kids can eat kind of every two to three hours, yes. but no more than that, exactly. right? Exactly. So that they they get a little hungry. Exactly. There, there's a little natural drive.
1: Exactly, because when you just take the edge off, you're only going to want your favorite things. Yeah. And you're not going to be more open yeah. to trying new things. And the other thing is, you don't have to make your child stay seated. The food stays at the table. You know, so you know the little, they can wander a little, little yeah, bit. A little piece guy of, can get of, up. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. the food stays at the table, and you just keep reminding. Yeah. Then it goes away, and then. Sometimes though those patterns to set up those patterns can be really tricky because there might your child may have some resistance to that. They yep. may be hungry, and you know that they're hungry, and your urges. And is then to their behavior them. is terrible because they're hungry. <laughs> exactly. I mean, grief, right? It gets so complicated. So that's where you can partner with your dietitian and your you know, psychologist to say, "How do I do this? You know, yeah. how do I respond to some of these challenges?" Because the, often families
0: need a lot of support. And before we close out, the mm-hmm. are there typical challenges that you see in school aged children with autism or teenage years that we should mention here? I think it's sort of,
1: excuse me, it's sort of more of the same, you know, even I think the biggest, one of the bigger things is the longer we go with some of these patterns of, you know, avoiding certain foods, you know, this reinforced anxiety that I do need to stay away from that, that that is a real fear of mine the worse that it can get. And the, the more we try to push and coax, the, sometimes the worse it can be. Yeah. So I find that when kids get older or when they're in high school, those problems are just a bit more significant and harder mm-hmm. to treat. But... Um, but sometimes some of those peer models and some of those for some kids when they are really motivated by social interaction can really be helpful mm-hmm. where like I do want to go over to my friend's house mm-hmm. and I do kind of want to eat the same things that they're eating can mm-hmm. help out mm-hmm. but it's not often the winner that can really help kids expand their diet sometimes it just doesn't even matter
0: yeah but- thank you L- lastly I just want uh, to this, this could be a whole other podcast but mm-hmm. you know I was thinking about all the different experimentation of restrictive diets so mm-hmm. gluten free diets or ketogenic diets or, you know, is that a big part, too, of how you help support families? I mean, do families kind of naturally tinker with that? I mean.
1: Yeah, they do. They, um, I think there's a lot of um, families that come in on these types of diets in hopes that that might alter their behavior Behavior, or the symptoms that they're seeing in their child. But also they're finding, too, that some of their kids truly have some food intolerances, not necessarily food allergies, but these intolerances where... Their
0: gut hurts or they get rashy. Rashy, diarrhea, that kind of stuff.
1: And unfortunately, when we're working, um, this is a big topic for us because when we're working with families who are coming in with their kiddos that have really restrictive diets and then they're restricting them even more, it can be a very big challenge. And so we just try to work together or work with a GI department and work with a family and what Mm -hmm. could we do, what could we safely expand because – We really need to, you know, improve the nutritional, overall nutritional quality of their diet.
0: Yeah, and that flexibility and and variety you talk about. Yeah, I love to celebrate. I think even about the different colored cheese. it you know, it's kind of helpful that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, this was great. We could talk for a long time. I think (laughs) um, I'd summarize it this way, what I learned from you today, that, you know, the majority of children with autism have challenges with eating at some point. And many families will pick up on that. Because we care so much about feeding, they'll pick up on that before even recognizing maybe changes in eye contact or expression or language, challenges that kids have. And that every time we intervene, when a child isn't eating as we want them to, it has an effect. And sometimes that can be good or bad. But if it's getting out of control, it makes sense to reach out for a pediatrician, knowing that you may have to advocate past some kind of getting blown off, that the normal growth curve may not reflect adequate nutrition and that may not contribute to better attention in school, better attention at home, and can even disrupt significantly the sleep that a child has, which again makes their kind of life a little bit harder. Um, That the challenges that kids face with autism range from being really rigid or wanting sameness to having associations or bad associations with eating one type of one color or one texture of food that drives them even to be more rigid. rigid. And that may just be because that's the way they understand the world, right? Mm-hmm. And that the conflict that starts to develop can snowball throughout life, so that intervening early mm-hmm. is really what you want for these families. Mm-hmm. So you have created a program that's interdisciplinary that includes therapists and nutritionists and psychologists together that okay. help families but not all families have access to that mm-hmm. and so they should start with their pediatrician. Yeah. What yeah. did I miss?
1: I think that sounds I think that sounds great. I think the the better piece I just as a psychologist to bring to the table is that to really make sure that you're adding that component when when people are trying to intervene and your child is having some challenging behavior, to remember that there's people to help with that yeah. and that we want to have people trained in understanding children's mental health and how to intervene with challenging behavior to be part of that team and part of that equation because sometimes that is the biggest challenge. Maybe nutritionally it looks great. Their growth looks great. They may have somewhat of a good variety, but they're challenging and the rigidity around mealtimes is so much and so stressful for families that you do need that extra help.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, thank you. And I think the, the the big message here too is like you are not alone in this completely turning your life upside down yeah. when you can't support your child in their yes. eating. And it may be that there's underlying gastroesophageal reflux disease or underlying constipation so that when they eat their tummy grumbles and then it makes their belly hurt and then they don't yes. eat and then something yes. else. So Keep being a squeaky wheel. Mm -hmm. Keep asking for support. And then also your point of making sure that when you're getting support from a therapist or a behaviorist or a nutritionist or a psychologist, (laughs) that they have the expertise Mm -hmm. in pediatrics. And if not, they can reach out to people like Dr. Dolezal for support. And she is responsive. I know this from experience when I was a complete stranger to her, which is really (laughs) amazing. Thank you so much for all this. We will have more information on the Seattle Mama Doc blog, including resources from the Autism Center at Seattle Children's, where Dr. Dolazal runs this multidisciplinary program. Um, but you are not alone, and mm-hmm. these needs that your children will have and the challenges with their eating, if you have a child with autism, will likely almost continue and change as they develop. Mm-hmm. So, ongoing support is necessary sometimes, and it's okay that you may need that. Mm-hmm. The reality is, parenting is such a high stakes job. But the good news is, you've got this. Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc Podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at SeattleMamaDoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from.